Part four, chapter thirteen of the Manxman. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Manxman by Sir Hall Cain. Part four, chapter thirteen. He, the spirit himself, may come when all the nerve of sense is dumb. Philip had not slept at Bellur. The house was in darkness as he passed. He was riding to Douglas. It is sixteen miles between town and town, six of them over the steep headland of Kirkmorgold. Before he reached the top of the ascent, he had been an hour on the road, and the night was near to morning. He had seen no one after leaving Ramsay, except a drunken miner with his bundle on his stick, marching home to a tipsy travesty of some brave song. His self-righteousness was overthrown. His pride was in the dust. Since he returned home, he had struggled to feel strong and easy in the sense of being an honourable man, but now he was thrown violently out of the path in which he had meant to walk rightly. What he was about to do was necessary, was inevitable, yet in his relation to Kate he was in the position of an immoral man, a betrayer, an adulterer, with a vulgar secret, which he must support by lying and share with servants. And what was the outlook? What would be the end? Here was a situation from which there was no escape. Let there be no false glamour, no disguise, no self-deception. On the eve of his promotion to the dignities and responsibilities of a judge, he was taking the first step down on the course of the criminal. The moon was shining at the full. It was low down in the sky, on his right, and casting his shadow onto the road. He walked his horse up the long hill. The even pace, the quiet of the night, the drowsy sounds of unseen stream and far-off murmuring sea overcame him in spite of himself, and he dozed in the saddle. As he reached the hilltop, the level step of the horse awoke him, and he knew that he was passing that desolate spot on the border of parish and parish, which is known as Tom Alone's. Opening his eyes without realising that he had slept, he thought he became aware of another horse and another rider walking by his side. They were on the left of him, going pace for pace, stepping along with him like his shadow. It is my shadow, he thought, and he forced up his head to look. Nothing was there but a whitewashed wall that fenced a sheepfold. The moon had gone under the mountains on the right, and the night would have been dark but for the stars. With an astonishment near to terror, Philip gripped the saddle with his quaking knees and broke his horse into a trot. When the hard ride had brought warmth to his blood and a glow to his cheeks, he told himself he had been the victim of fancy. It was nothing. It was a delusion of the sight, a mere shadow cast off by his distempered brain. He was passing at a walking pace through Laxey by this time, and as the horse's feet beat up the echoes of the sleeping town, his heart grew brave. Next day at noon he was talking with his servant, Gemma Lord, in his rooms in Athold Street. He had lately become tenant of the entire house. They were in his old chambers on the first floor, looking on to the churchyard. I may rely on you, Jemmy. You may, Deemster. His voice was low and husky. His eyes were down. He was fumbling the papers on the table. Get the carriage, a Landau, from Shimmins, but drive it yourself. Be at government offices at four. We'll go by St. John's. If there is any attempt at Ramsay to take the horse out of the carriage, resist it. I will alight at the head of the town. 
then drive on to the lane between the chapel and Elm Cottage. The moment the lady joins you, start away. Return to Laxey. Are the rooms upstairs ready? They will be. The two in front of your own, and the little parlour behind this. We shall need no other servants. The lady will be housekeeper. I quite understand, Deemster. Philip turned his face aside and spoke thickly. And you know what name? I know what name, Deemster. You have no objection? None whatever, Deemster. Philip drew a long breath. I'm not Deemster yet, Jemmy. Perhaps it might have been, but God knows. You're a good fellow. I shall not forget it. He made a motion as if to dismiss the man, but Jemmy did not go. Beg pardon, Your Honour. Yes? Your Honour has eaten nothing at breakfast, and the bed wasn't slept in last night. I was riding late, then I had work to do. But I heard your foot on the floor. It woke me times. I may have speeches to make today. Fetch me a glass of water. Jemmy brought water bottle and glass. As Philip took the water, an icy numbness seemed to seize his arm. I, well, I declare I can't lift. Ah, thanks. The man raised Philip's arm to his mouth. The glass rattled against his teeth while he drank. Pardon, Your Honour. You're looking ten years older lately. The sooner this day is over, the better. Sleep, Jemmy. I only want sleep. I must have a long, long sleep at Ballure tonight. He left the house at three minutes to three, carrying his cloak over his arm. It was a hot day at the beginning of June, and when he stepped out at the door, the air of the street smote his face like a blast from an open furnace. He reeled and almost fell. The sun's heat was like a load on his head. Its dazzling rays made his sight dim, and he had a sound in his ears like running water. As he walked down the street, he caught his wandering reflection in the shop windows. Jemmy was right, he thought. My worst enemy would not accuse me of looking too young today. There was a small crowd about the entrance to government offices. Carriages were driving up, discharging their occupants and going on. The bishop, the attorney-general, finally the governor, with his wife and daughter, passed into the house. In the commotion of these arrivals, Philip reached the door unobserved. When he was recognised, there was a sudden hush of voices, and then a low buzz of gossip. He walked through with a firm step, going in alone, all eyes upon him. The doorway opens on a narrow passage, which is neither wide nor very light, and the sunshine without made the gloom within more grey and uncertain. As Philip stepped over the threshold, he was conscious that somebody was coming out. When he had taken two paces more, he drew up sharply with the sense of walking into a mirror. At the next instant he saw that what he had taken for the reflection of his own face in a glass was the actual face of another man. The man was coming out as he went in. They were approaching each other. At two paces more they were side by side. He looked at the man with creeping horror. The man looked at him with amazement and dread. Thus eye to eye they crossed and passed. Then each turned his head over his shoulder and looked after the other, Philip stepping into the gloom the stranger striding into the light. At the next moment the narrow doorway was darkened by a ponderous figure rolling through. Then a heavy hand fell on Philip's shoulder, and a hearty voice exclaimed, "'Hello, Christian. Proud to see you, boy. You've outstripped old stick in the mud, but I always knew you would lead me the way through. Funking a bit, are you? Hands like ice, anyway? Come along, nothing to be nervous about. 
We're not going to give you the dose of William Doan. Don't martyr the Christians these days, you know. It was Philip's old master, the clerk of the rolls. Taking Philip's arm, he was for swinging him along. But Philip, still looking towards the street, said falteringly, Did you perhaps see a man, a young man, going out at the door? When? As you came in. Was there, said the clerk, dubiously, then as by a sudden light. Did he wear a round hat and a monkey jacket? Maybe, I hardly know, I didn't observe. That'll be the man. He's been at me half the morning for admission to the council. Said he'd known you all his life. Bosch is a thorn-bush, but somehow I couldn't say no to the fellow at last. He ought to be inside, though. It's nothing, thought Philip, only another shadow from a tired brain. Jemmy's talk about my altered looks, the reflection in the shop windows, the sudden gloom after the dazzling sunlight. That's all. That's all. Sleep. I want sleep. When the governor took his seat with the first deemster on his right, and motioned Philip to the chair on his left, an involuntary murmur passed over the chamber at the contrast there presented. The one deemster, very old, with round, russet face, quick, gleaming eyes, and a comfortable, youthful, even merry expression, the other, very young, with long, pallid, powerful face, large eyes, and a tired look of age. Philip presented his commission received from the Home Secretary, and the oath of office was administered to him. Kissing a stained copy of a leather-bound testament, he repeated the words after the Governor in a thick croak that seemed to hack the air. By this book, and by the holy contents thereof, and by the wonderful works that God hath miraculously wrought in heaven above, and on the earth beneath, in six days and seven nights, I, Philip Christian, do swear that I will, without respect of favour or friendship, love or hate, loss or gain, consanguinity or affinity, envy or malice, execute the laws of this isle justly, betwixt our sovereign lady the Queen, and her subjects within this isle, and betwixt party and party, as indifferently as the herring backbone doth lie in the midst of the fish. As Philip pronounced these words, he was conscious of only one face in that assembly. It was not the face of the governor, of the bishop, of any dignitary of church or state, but a rugged, eager, dark face over a black beard in the grip of a great brown hand, with sparkling eyes, parted lips, and a look of boyish pride. It was the face of Pete. "'It only remains for me,' said the governor, "'to congratulate your honour on the high office to which it has pleased Her Majesty to appoint you, and to wish you long life and health to fulfil its duties, with blameless credit to yourself and distinction to your country. There was some other speaking, and then Philip replied. He spoke clearly, firmly, and well. A reference to his grandfather provoked applause. His modesty and natural manner made a strong impression. His Excellency is not so far wrong after all, was the common whisper. Some further business, and the council broke up for general gossip. Then on the pavement outside, while the carriages were coming in line, there were renewed congratulations, invitations, and warnings. The governor invited Philip to dinner. He excused himself, saying he had promised to dine with his aunt at Balour. The ladies warned him to spare himself, and recommended a holiday. And then the clerk of the rolls, proud as a peacock, strutting here and there and everywhere, and assuming the airs of a guardian, cried, "'Can't yet, though, for he holds his first court in Ramsey tomorrow morning. Put on the cloak, Christian. 
It will be cold driving. Good men are scarce. An open landau came up at length, with Jem a lord on the box seat, and Pete walking by the horse's head, smoothing its neck and tickling its ears. Why, you were talking of the young man Christian, and behold ye, here's the great fellow himself. Well, young chap, slapping Pete on the back, see your deemster take the oath, eh? He's my cousin, said Philip. Cousin? Is he, then? Can he perhaps be? Ah, yes, of course, certainly. The good man stammered and stopped, remembering the marriage of Philip's father. He opened the carriage door and stood aside for Philip, but Philip said, Step in, Pete, and with a shamefaced look Pete rolled into the carriage. Philip took the seat beside him, amid a buzz of voices from the people standing about the door. Well, as you like. Good day, then, boy. Good day, said the clerk of the rolls, clashing the door back. The carriage began to move. Good day, Your Honour, cried several out of the crowd. Philip raised his hat. The hats of the men went up to him. Some of the girls were wiping their eyes. End of Part 4, Chapter 13